Relatively Prime is brought to you by the 159 people who reached deep into their pockets and found some amount of extra change that they could spare to give to the Kickstarter project. In particular, today I would like to thank Peter Rowlett and David Darman, as well as Relatively Prime's Kickstarter producers, Douglas Dollar Stewart, Jay Frosting, Martin Dominic, Daniel Greenspun, Colin Wright, Edmund Harris, and Cody Palmer. Without all of you, this program just flat out never would have happened. So thank you. Welcome to the subway of the wonderful city of Barcelona, where I am on my way to see my favorite building in the whole world. From the hostel where I'm staying, it's a 10-stop trip with one transfer. It takes around 30 minutes. I would have still gone if it took hours. In fact, for another chance to see Antony Gaudi's La Sagrada Familia, I would do just about anything. Perhaps hearing my reaction to being inside might just explain why. Also, sorry for the low volume, but I was doing everything I could to avoid the overly suspicious security guard who had taken a strong interest in me. You always know that there's magic architecture. You do. I mean, there has to be. Otherwise, it wouldn't hold things up. But this isn't like that. This isn't architecture with math in it. This is mathematical architecture. These are structures that scream out that this is mathematics. This is the mathematics of beauty. This is not just the mathematics of holding things up. And I don't know how I can really stress just how much whenever I walk into this place I just get filled with this feeling about mathematics. And it's not something you can get anywhere else. I've, I've been to a lot of places. This is the only place I've really felt this, this mathematical structure feeling that nothing else has. I am Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Relatively Prime, stories from the mathematical domain. back to La Sagrada Familia later on in the show. But before we do, I should mention that today's episode is all about shapes. Well, all about geometry. Mathematics is rather unfairly thought of as a numbers game, but there really is so much more to it. After scouring the globe, I found a man proud to stand on his geometric soapbox and help me convince everyone of the breadth and the depth. Of mathematics. I'm Edmund Harris, a mathematician at the University of Arkansas. I, I want I want you to answer a question for me, Edmund, if, if you will. Uh, mathematics is just numbers, right? Um, well, <laughs> as you know, I have a history on this one. <laughs> mathematics is not just numbers, but numbers are a very significant part of mathematics. Well, uh, okay, fair enough. So if math is not just numbers, as, as I'm really afraid that if we asked a lot of people on the street, that would actually be their answer. If mathematics yeah. is not just numbers, what else is mathematics? Um, yeah, I certainly agree with that. So many of our students, uh, what they're 
definition of math is, even the math majors, that the definition of what mathematics is is very narrow. Personally, in a massive intellectual land grab, I claim mathematics is everything that you can think about without reference to the real world. So basically, any idea that you can develop in some meaningful way without adding, um, without needing to, to refer to actual physical or things outside your, your, your mental process. That doesn't mean that mathematics is all done that way, but it can be done that way. The amazing fact is that the, the ideas developed in that way allow us, have allowed us several times in the history of, of humanity to actually perceive the world better. I mean, the stereotypical example is Einstein realizing that space wasn't flat, that there was actually curvature to space. In order to do that, he needed to know that geometry, the geometry existed to support it, and the geometry wasn't available until just before. You really have to look at the geometry um, of Riemann developing from, from the work of Gauss that before you, you get the, the ability to mathematically express the intuitions that Einstein was, was feeling about the universe. Since, since math is not just no, since math is, is a lot more than that, as you said, it's uh, all of these things that we can do intellectually uh, without reference to the real world. Uh, we, we happen to be sitting in your office at the University of Arkansas, which uh, is not necessarily what anyone pictures as, uh, as a mathematician's office. Uh, there is a whiteboard on, on the back wall, yeah. uh, but could you uh, describe a bit of what is surrounding us? Uh, well, we've got a lot of models, um, primarily made out of Zone Tool, which I try and plug every time I have a chance. But yeah, models and various things that I've made. We have lots of uh, laser cut paper things on the windows. Um, lots of books as well, but I guess those would be more predictable. <laughs> um, and uh, well, I think it, yeah, I think you're referring to the models when you you say so, Alan. Uh, what do you see as being the great benefit of of having all of these models? I mean, because you're you're talking about before mathematics being the world of all all things that we don't necess that are are intellectual, mental, but not in the real world. But all of a sudden, now we have all these things in the real world. So why are we taking this this wonderful intellectual land grab you did, and now all of a sudden, even trying to grab even more land? It seems. Well, the way many people perceive mathematics is as a way of abstractly modeling the real world. And I'm wanting to reverse that and um, really model the abstract world. So take these, these objects we, we can work on with our, our, with, in a very rational way, with a sort of rational mind, and help develop our intuition of them. And to do that, we want to use every tool that we have available. And our visual senses are far more powerful than some of our rational senses. You know, the, the ability to think through space, when you have something in your hands you can manipulate, is a lot stronger. So the, the motivation for me is to start with the, the abstract models and see how turning them real can under, help understand them as as abstract models. So it's a reverse of this traditional way of using mathematics. You start with something real, you convert it into something abstract, you work around with it, and then you convert that back into, into the real. This is starting with the abstract, converting into the real, working around with it, and then converting that back into the abstract, or helping develop your understanding of the abstract world. And I think in this communication between the two, you can benefit both mathematical understanding and the real-world understanding, really making it a two-way process. Hey, so uh, these models are not uh, shapes that I necessarily recognize. Uh, so, so what what is? Um, and I know that uh, these are uh, traditionally what uh, four-dimensional or multi-dimensional or uh, above three-dimensional shapes that are now being uh, modeled in the three dimensions that we actually have access to? Yeah, there's a, a lot of the models are, are come from four-dimensional geometry, especially the, the regular polytopes in four dimensions. 
And these are a sort of variation on the regular polyhedra. Um, everybody should know, although some people don't, that there are five um, regular polyhedra, tetrahedron, cube, octahedron, dodecahedron, and icosahedron. These things were, were known about and investigated thousands of years ago. More recently, in the 19th century, people realized um, that geometry didn't just have to be three-dimensional. Again, that step towards just thinking purely in, in terms of abstraction. And they, once you get away from three-dimensional geometry, you can start thinking about four-dimensional geometry. Um, it's not anything mystical. It's just describing every point in space with four numbers rather than three. But once you're considering that, you can construct the equivalent to the regular um, polyhedra. And there turn out to be six um, in, in four dimensions. Strangely, in five dimensions, it goes down to three. And for every dimension beyond five, there are only three of these really regular polytypes, these really regular forms. And that's quite an amazing feat that, I mean, with work, you can sort of get a, a concept of what four-dimensional space is like, but it's simply impossible to, to ever work on the, the specifics of, say, 173-dimensional um, space. Yet we know things that are true in 173-dimensional space. For example, there are only three of these regular forms. And so this is the, the, the sort of magic to, to me, that you can say something that's true about something that there's no way to, to, no other way to access. You can access it through these sort of abstract, rigorous mathematical methods, but you can't, you couldn't do it any other way. There's no way we can visualize 173 dimensional space. Coming back to four dimensional space, the nice thing is that. Well, if you think about what you perceive, you don't see three dimensions. You actually see two dimensions. The, the image on your eye is a two-dimensional image. Yet you're able to rebuild that two-dimensional image into a three-dimensional model of the world you're looking at. Well, we can use a similar trick to take these four-dimensional objects and in some sense say, well, if I was a four-dimensional creature, my vision would be three-dimensional. And so what would these objects look like on my three-dimensional field of perception? And so we can draw those objects now in, in, in three dimensions. We can construct in, in, in three dimensions. So you're taking a four-dimensional object. You're bringing it down to a three-dimensional object in this way that our two-dimensional perception can then rebuild into a three-dimensional object. And the interesting thing is that these, some of these four-dimensional shapes, when you take them into three dimensions, create beautiful models. Um, my particular favorite is the, the 120 cell, which is sitting there in the window. Um, that's not much use to most listeners, I guess. But uh, <laughs> um, when I'm talking about, I talk, to, talk about developing geometric intuition. It's thinking about questions like this, about what happens in higher dimensional space, what happens as we build objects like this. It helps develop a, a sense of, of space um, that is in, incredibly valuable. I think, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to teach some of this stuff just to architects um, because obviously architects need a really strong sense of three-dimensional space, or sculptors also. Um, have this sense of actually how three dimensions works. Um, and when people ask me, how do you understand four dimensions, my response normally is to say, I don't understand three dimensions and I work from there. Now, uh, there's, a, there's another benefit from all of this model making uh, that, that we haven't talked about. It's also beautiful. Like, like these, these models, these objects, uh, when you build them, they look really good. and and recently you've uh, had a very large version of the 120 cell installed, correct? Um, it's a, well, it's a different form. Oh, it's, it's called the form. omnitruncated 120 cell. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry, I, I, I apologize. So the omnitruncated 120 cell. Um, 
and I won't bother trying without any images to even start <laughs> explaining what that is. All I say is you have to visit either the London Knowledge Lab or the library at the University of Arkansas and you can see this object. That's the only two places in the world that they, they exist. Quite possibly the only two places uh, in the, uh, the galaxy, depending on uh, what other aliens have, have done. What sort of reactions do you get, uh, I mean, both from uh, mathematicians when they see this, but, uh, but even more specifically from people who uh, generally are, are, you don't have interest in mathematics? What sort of things do, when you show people these models, does that, uh, I, that question's terribly worded. <laughs> well, let me try and give an equally bad answer. <laughs> well, the first thing, I, yeah, the beauty is not surprising certainly to mathematicians, yeah. because mathematics, because it's not grounded in the real world, beauty is really your only guide. And you're not looking, you know, you're not trying to answer a question because it's useful. Why, you know, why do you want to answer this question? Because it, either it is beautiful itself, or it, it helps develop something that, that works towards with beauty. I think, I mean, there were two two benefits to, to making them physical. Firstly, again, it comes back to people having a stronger visual sense than they ha have rational sense. And this is even more true of people who haven't had a, math a strong mathematical training, say, you know, doing a, a math major or uh, sort of undergraduate mathematics or even graduate level. And so suddenly forms that they can't get to with a that were just by thinking about them, they can see. And so I th it really um, shocks and interests people uh, that these things can be, that these things come out of, of, of mathematics, especially uh, people who, who have developed those visual senses. A lot of you know, artists are really keen on, on many of these I ideas. Um, and um, so it's a great way to to take the the, math, the sense of mathematical beauty that normally is restricted to, to people who have invested five or six years of their life and make that accessible to people who, who haven't you know have, have invested their, their, their time in, in, in other ways well thank you very much thank you Now let us go back and visit my favorite example of mathematical beauty made physical again. What? Seriously, what is it? Come on, can't, can't you see that I'm recording now? Really, breaking mathematical news. Right now, it's, it's breaking right now. And it is an exclusive. An exclusive, okay, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll talk with them. I'll talk with them right away, right away, right away. <clears throat> So sorry about that, everyone, but I just heard from my producer that some amazing news has just come out of the world of mathematics. News that's going to change the way that we understand the world. So here we go. This is Relatively Prime News. Reliably reporting today's theorems and tomorrow's theories. Here's your host, Samuel Hansen. I have joining me the author of uh, the Woolworth study, uh, Matt Parker. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you very much, Samuel. Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm here, of course, to talk to you about uh, you and then uh, the work that Tom Brooks did. Uh, oh, yes, as, yes. As well, one, of course. One of my uh, research colleagues, yeah. And, and so, uh, 
first up, uh, why did you decide to study the, the Woolworth civilization of, of all the possible things you could look at? Well, I, I was reading the research of uh, the gentleman who you've already mentioned, and I won't for uh, legal reasons, uh, and I saw his research into the ancient monolithic sites in the UK, because the, the United Kingdom is dotted with stone structures and uh, modern settlements which he believed would have once been on an ancient monolithic site from prehistory, and uh, he had linked them all up, and he discovered that if you join uh, three different ancient prehistoric sites in the UK, they will indeed uh, form a triangle. Uh, and then uh, uh, he discovered that some of these, because you know, further research is required, uh, some of these triangles are incredibly accurate in terms of being isosceles uh, triangles, and the way they link together is very accurate, and he thought these, these arrangements were so precise uh, that uh, they must have been done for a reason. And his theory was that there was some form of ancient navigational system, uh, prehistoric satnav. If you yeah, if land, you, landmark satnav. I landmark satnav, uh, as the Daily Mail put it. And uh, he, in fact, he said it would give us an insight into how they used used to live. And uh, and uh, to quote him directly, uh, he he said they were so precise he could not rule out alien intervention. Well, and that and that is something I want to uh, get to a, a bit later on. But uh, but as I as as I was trying to ask there, why did you decide on on Woolworth specifically? Well, I then I then thought, well, I should use this same technique, right? Because many people were skeptical of this technique. I said it, it can't be real. So I I applied it to some other ancient sites, and I found exactly the same pattern to the same level of precision dotted right across the UK. But as as you said, I was not using the ancient monolithic sites in the UK. I was using the ancient Woolworth stores. Uh, which uh, the Woolworth Empire collapsed in uh, late 2008, uh, common era, and uh, we really have no idea how the people of 2008 used to live, uh, how they used to buy cheap CDs and discount kitchen goods. We just we just don't know, uh, but we believe it was from their ancient Woolworths uh, department store uh, places of worship, and so I, I showed that uh, the Woolworth stores, which uh, to be honest, you can assume are a random distribution of, of shops across the UK. Uh, in towns and the like, all over the place. And I showed that if you take any set of locational data, you can find the same patterns that was found in the ancient monolithic sites. And so I thought using a modern store and playing it off against, because uh, it's obviously since collapsed, uh, playing it off against the ancient sites, I wanted to emphasize that you can take any locational set of data, and provided you've got enough locations, and I used 800 Woolworth stores, uh, and the ancient monolithic uh, guy used 1,500, uh, ancient sites. If you've got enough locations, you can find any patterns you want in that random data. Now, uh, specifically, you, you found something that, that is absolutely amazing to me. You found that three of the stores around Birmingham actually formed an, an equilateral triangle. Yes, yes. How can you possibly, uh, without, say, alien intervention or, or really extremely advanced mathematics uh, being involved with, with the creators of these stores, possibly explain how that could happen? Uh, well, yeah, well, it is. It's a very equilateral triangle. Uh, it, it's amazingly so. Uh, and uh, the thing is, if I'm using 800 uh, stores, I believe, and and someone will correct me if this is incorrect. If you've got 800 points, they make uh, over 85ish million different triangles. At the very least, tens to millions. Someone someone would do a calculation and check. In fact, I'll do it in a minute and then correct myself. So you won't even hear this if I was wrong. Uh, uh, if you've got 85 million, let's say, uh, triangles to choose from, and they're all randomly generated, some of them are going to be alarmingly accurate. And so uh, it's just a case of having a big enough data set, it happens by accident. Well, and, and it turns out if you take the base of that triangle and, and you extend it out uh, to uh, Conway and Luton, you yeah. actually, and this is 173.8 mile base now. It is 173.8 now. miles. Uh, you get you get a straight line within zero point zero five percent accuracy, and and that's that's four I believe forty and thirty feet. Yes, uh, Conaway is within forty feet of the line, and Luton is within thirty feet. Am yeah. Amazingly and, accurate. And so I mean, so what I'm asking is, do you think that these creators were actually in contact with alien cultures in order to do this? No, no, not the slightest. Uh, it's just a case of, again, you've got enough random locations, and if you join up all the lines, that's officially, uh, if you calculated that, is a, one metric, a lot of lines. Uh, and some of them are going to happen to line up with each other and do amazing things. And some of them are going to cross each other at right angles. And whatever pattern you want, you just keep using more and more locations and sites and any random data, you'll find that. So you don't need aliens, you just need enough uh, random data. And, and so, it, and not only that, uh, not only can you extend the base, you can also take the uh, bisector 
of the triangle uh, will pass through uh, with 0.05% accuracy again. And so uh, what, I mean, for this, do you need gray aliens or, or the green aliens? Uh, no, 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 you don't, don't you, uh, I can show you what I did, right? You don't need aliens, because we're in, we're in my office, uh, uh, Queen Mary, here in the maths department, and I've got on my wall, I printed out a map of the UK, uh, and it was uh, Google Maps, and it's got every single location of the old Woolworth stores, and I, I got a ruler, uh, which uh, was grey, so you were close, uh, and I then uh, just basically got the ruler and moved it around until I found enough sites that lined up, and then I put their exact locations into the computer and calculated the exact lines and all the distances. But it was, I just literally got the dots where they are and picked the ones that look they lined up and then made a joke saying you'd have to, if you use the other guy's logic, assume that aliens founded the Woolworth civilization. So, so what you're saying is that you're one of the competing aliens since you also clearly have mathematics good enough to notice what the original aliens did. Yeah, no, 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 no. It, it, it's something called Ramsey theory, right? It, it's an idea that if you have a big enough set of random data, you can find any pattern you want to any level of precision you want. And uh, you need to be very careful when you're taking some kind of pattern out of data to look at how much of the data matches that pattern. And if you have to throw most of it away, which the guy doing the original triangles did, uh, you can't then conclude things like aliens. You've got to conclude, I've cherry-picked the data that matched what I already wanted. Okay, so since the, the aliens helped the World War creators uh, create this sort of uh, landmark sat-nav, uh, why, why would they? Like, what was, what was the impetus? Why uh, were the Woolworth creators and the aliens trying to, to help people navigate this, this ancient isle? Uh, maybe the aliens just wanted uh, very cheap ladybird clothing. Maybe that was what it was. Okay, well, uh, Mr. Parker, it has been an absolute pleasure. I want to thank you for coming on to talk to us about this. Yeah, thank you very much. This has been a presentation of Relatively Prime News. Your source for breaking mathematics. That, that was a get. Wow. I can barely believe what I just heard. Well, let's get back to our scheduled show now, and go back to my favorite example of mathematical beauty made physical, the wonderful Antony Gaudi Basilica La Sagrada Familia. I needed to know more about this structure and its creator, and so after some searching, I found just the people to speak to. Hi, my name is Marcella Giulia Lorenzi. I come from University of Calabria, Laboratory for Scientific Communication. And I am Mauro Francaviglia. Uh, I am the husband of Marcella. I am a professor at the University of Torino, Department of Mathematics. Uh, it is a pleasure to speak with both of you. And I'm uh, here to speak to you about uh, Antony Gaudi and uh, La Sagrada Familia. So I was, I was wondering if we could just start out, maybe uh, speak a little bit about uh, Gaudi himself and, and kind of what his life was and, and who he was. Okay, um, Gaudi, in a sense, uh, was the initiator of a new age in, in architecture. He was a Catalan architect. He was born in Catalonia in um, 1852, and he lived for 73 years, and he worked mainly in Barcelona, where he did a lot of things, but for a long time he was not understood as an architect. In fact, he invented a new style, and uh, he was using gothic, uh, gothic-like structures, and using a lot of uh, mathematics, in a sense without knowing it, and introducing a, a number of ideas in architecture, which had to do with the tendency of somehow uh, representing nature in the architectural works. He died in poverty, and he left a, a fantastic piece of architecture, uh, unfinished, which is the Sagrada Familia, which has been finished very recently. Indeed, it is not really finished yet. And it is important to stress out that he came from a very Catholic family, and indeed by himself, he dedicated uh, quite all his life, but especially the last years of his life, to the achievement of this great opera, which was a kind of... Um, a thing similar to what were the medieval cathedrals, Gothic cathedrals. So a very important artwork, a very important architectural work. 
So what was it about uh, Gaudi that kind of set him apart? What, what was different about him when compared with the other architects of his time? Okay, before Gaudi, architecture was um, very um, geometrically structured uh, following uh, the, the, the paradigms of Euclidean geometry. So straight lines, uh, uh, right angles, uh, um, standard uh, structures uh, of linear structures that one can see in all the buildings of that time, uh, also in modern buildings. Gaudi, in a sense, wanted to go back to the antiquity and making a, a new, fresh way of constructing things in which, as I told before, nature was a, a dominant theme. For example, the columns that he constructed into this cathedral were inspired by the trees that one can see around. Uh, and he was using columns with uh, a shape which was changing from the bottom part to the top part, uh, so to accompany the view and to uh, feel better the, the, the height of the building itself. And then he was using um, freshly new um, structures like uh, uh, catenaries, like uh, special curves, and was also making investigations on how to use them, uh, something that was forgotten for a long time and just used very seldom in architecture. He was then anticipating what were uh, to come after, uh, in, in this case, some other famous architects like Lord Wright and also Le Corbusier and Calatrava, which uh, used a specific uh, kind of constructing architecture called organic architecture. I guess, I guess we should get right into it then. What, uh, it, could you just tell me specifically or, or not? I mean, I, I happen to know what it is, but my listeners probably don't. What is La Sagrada Familia? La Sagrada Familia is a cathedral. It is a Catholic church uh, based, uh, situated in Barcelona, and it is a very impressive artwork uh, or architectural work. Uh, in his first idea, he, it uh, uh, included 18 columns, 18 uh, pinnacles, mostly based by natural forms, and uh, everything goes in the direction of the heights. And this, of course, was uh, already made by the Gothic cathedrals. But the important thing is that he used very strange forms. He also used Euclidean geometry, but he uh, mixed it all together because uh, one column could be made of different Euclidean shapes, but inserted one into the other so to uh, shift themselves and form uh, very strange other forms. And uh, for example, other pinnacles were inspired by the time mates. Uh, so how did how did the design of the cathedral change over time from when he started his work on it to when he passed? Well, he was continuing continually studying the the shapes and the structures he was using. Um, for example, as as we said before, he was using the catenary. The catenary is um, is a very important curve in mathematics. In fact, is the shape that the chain takes when it, it is hanging from two points at the same level. And terms comes from catena, which in Latin is the name for chain. Uh, the catenary was known also in the antiquity. In fact, it existed in certain constructions of the Mesopotamic time. And it is a very important curve because it is the balance of forces uh, which tend this structure to, uh, to attain that shape and not another one. And in, in order to do that, he was doing a lot of experiments in the underground, underneath the cathedral. He had a laboratory there. And he was uh, working with ropes and with um, um, lead uh, weights to see what, which was the, the effect of gravitation on these. And then he reverted these structures that he was constructing with, with toy models, and he inverted it, uh, moving it from downward to upward, uh, and so to construct something that instead of being hanging under the forces, was extending to the, towards the sky against the gravitational forces. And then he was continuously changing the designs. 
indeed in the basement uh, of the uh, cathedral, also now in the museum, you can find above uh, photographic documents of uh, archive. And also uh, there is um, a mock-up model uh, of all these weights hanging from the ropes. Yeah, I, I have actually seen that. It seemed like uh, one of the most uh, ingenious ways of modeling a structure that I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what is a variable transversal shape? Uh, sorry, a variable transversal shape. I, I believe it was referring, uh, the variable transversal shape, I believe was referring to the columns. I think so, because uh, the columns, as also Marcella was saying before, uh, are constructed on the basis of polygonal sections, but these polygons change, so that uh, they change, in, in a sense it is, what, what in, in science is called now a, bra a breaking of symmetry. So they have a symmetry and they change symmetry in order to accompany the view. So they start, for example, as squares in the basement and then they become octagons, dividing the, the sides by two, and then these octagons become uh, uh, polygons with 16 16 sides, and and so on, and uh, and he did it not only with the squares, which is very simple, but also with other polygons, which are m more difficult to construct and and better to see, like pentagons, for example, or uh, anagons, and so this this the transversal section of this change changes continuously, like in a tree that in the tree has a uh, as a circular in principle structure at the beginning, and then changes a little bit, changes the shape, and changing also. Um, not only the, the dimension, but also the shape. What is, it, what is interesting is that the process that he followed was in a sense fractal, which is the same process that nature follows. So a process of self-similarity and self-reproduction of the structures. And in this case, also using basic forms as the Euclidean geometry, geometric forms. Uh, you mentioned before that that the structure does follow some of the you know more typical Euclidean geometry that most people would think of when they think of architecture. But uh, if if I'm not wrong, he also used some uh, other more modern forms of geometry in his work as well. Correct? Uh, yes, and in fact, uh, he's used these catenaries and these. Uh, uh, not only the catenaries, the curves, but also the surfaces which are generated by cotton. They are usually called catenoids. But then he used also an, a number of other uh, curved surfaces, uh, all of them having in common the fact that they somehow they are related by what in physics is called the variational principle, namely something is minimized, is reduced to the minimum, for example, the torsion, or for example, the weight, and so on. And he was using this not only in the cathedral, but also in a number of other architectural structures he was constructing here and there in the town. There are very beautiful houses, very famous in Barcelona. There is a park, and in these places there is a lot of these lines and surfaces which are rather far from the Euclidean standard, and they have a lot of curvatures which you can see and enjoy. Uh, another example, in the interior of the cathedral, he has uh, opened certain eyes to let the, the light get in, and he was using paraboloids, uh, rotational paraboloids there, in order to have more light into the ambience. Uh, as, as someone... If someone was, was interested in mathematics, as, as say I happen to be, and they were uh, going to uh, Barcelona and, and visiting La Sagrada Familia, what things of the structure or any of the facades would really be of, of interest to someone who is interested in mathematics? I think the best thing to do is to go on the top of one of the pinnacles and look on the roof where people are building some parts of the cathedrals. You can see fantastic forms which are under construction and which are not hidden by um, other surfaces like uh, tiles. So you can see the very uh, mathematical structure which is inside this these parts of the, the church. Indeed, there is another thing which decorates and which is not due to um, Godi, but to Subirax, which is the, the pseudo-magic square, which could be interesting for a mathematician. 
uh, this decorates the back of the church and um, it's a strange, it's not a really uh, what is called a real uh, magic square because uh, there are some numbers which are repeated. But it's uh, interesting to, to see that uh, the sum is always 33, which is uh, namely the age of Christ. So that could be interesting for a mathematician. There is also an explanation within uh, the museum also of this um, magic square. So this could be interesting. And of course, also uh, within the museum, you, you can find the forms, the squares, the uh, platonic solids, and the way you can see the way they were cut in order to obtain these variational columns. Hey, well, I, I want to thank you both so much for uh, talking to me about what is, I, I, I will openly admit, my favorite building in the world. Thank you for asking us. What a pleasure. So I have a question for you. What is the shape of the internet? Oh, you say you've never considered that question? Well, until recently, neither had I. It isn't even clear if it's that good of a question. The internet's not a physical object, it's a digital network. How could it have a shape? Of course, there is the hardware that actually creates the network of connections that the internet relies on, but their real-world geography never seemed especially important. Whenever I pictured the internet, I always thought of it like the map of a subway system. You know, the ones where you have the stations and lines running between them, but the map doesn't have any relationship to the geography of the city itself. And while the internet can be mapped just like that, just like a subway, it turns out that there's also another way. Another way that is closely related to the geometry of a library. Imagine that you're going to the library and you want to find a book. Uh, there are many books in the library, and these books can be categorized. For example, you want to find something like maybe this book on, say, Lorenzan geometry, <laughs> okay? Imagine that you don't know what the book you're looking for, but you want to find some book on Lorenzan geometry, right? Then you, when you enter the library, that you understand that you don't want to go to, say, art, uh, art or fiction or whatever. You want to go to the science part of the library. So roughly speaking, all books in the library can be categorized at this top level as, for example, arts, humanities, and science, right? So you go to this portion of the library where uh, books on science are kept. Okay, so this is a large group of books. Now, within this science portion, there is physics, there is mathematics, there is engineering, and so on and so forth. So within this large category of books on science, on scientific books, there is subcategories. Then you enter this portion of the library where the book on mathematics are kept, because that's what you're looking for. So, okay, in mathematics, there are different categories as well, for example, geometry, topology, analysis, and so on and so forth. Then you understand that you need to look in the geometric portion of that subcategory. And then you understand that you're not looking for the Riemannian geometry, but you're looking for the Lorentzian geometry, and this way you're even narrowing down all the books that are kept in the library to this small subcategory on Lorentzian geometry, and within that category you may find something that you're looking for. That was Dmitry Krukov. D M I T R I Dmitry K R I O U K O V Krukov. 
Senior Research Scientist at the Cooperative Association for Internet Data Analysis at the University of California, San Diego, and one of the researchers studying the underlying shape of the internet. They began this research by trying to unscramble the geometry of complex networks in general, be they biological, technological, or even social. But if you look now at this uh, geometry of categories of different books, uh, then you understand that the picture that emerges is that there is a library, which is a collection of all books. Then it can be split into the subcategories of arts, science, humanities. Then within each category, there is a further splitting, further splitting, further splitting. So the logical structure of relationships between different categories can be visualized as a tree. Okay. And uh, hyperbolic geometry is basically a soft version, continuous version of the geometry of trees. And uh, if we now recognize uh, that uh, complex networks are basically networks of uh, different elements, distinguishable elements. And then these elements, these entities that interact, and the interaction between these entities are the links in the network. But we're not looking at these links, we're looking at the latent structure of categorization between different elements, then we understand that all these elements can be split into categories, then this individ each individual category can be further split into subcategories, and so on and so forth. Then we are uh, forced to recognize that something like hyperbolic geometry or the geometry of trees underlying the structure that we observe uh, in many real networks. Real-world complex networks have two very important properties. There's a low occurrence of non-complete triads, and there's an abundance of hubs. If you're not a network theorist, this probably doesn't mean that much to you. So instead, let's try framing it in the language of social networks. The first property means that if you're friends with two people, it is highly likely that they're going to be friends with each other as well. And the second property just means that there's a bunch of very popular people. The amazing thing that Dr. Krukov and his fellow researchers found is that these two properties appear naturally if you presume that a network has an underlying hyperbolic framework. Determining this underlying geometrical framework of complex networks is all well and good. Actually, it's a rather amazing feat, but it still doesn't give us the shape of a real-world network, such as the internet. That... That takes more work. So how do you actually go from taking one of these real-world networks and kind of modeling them in the hyperbolic geometry? Now, if you are given a real network, say an internet, that is given to you by the structure of the internet, of course, you don't know anything about its latent geometry. So the task, the very complicated task, is to infer the coordinates of each node in the real network. The coordinates of this node in this latent, latent hyperbolic space. How you do that? Well, uh, there are a variety of methods, again, coming from uh, statistical physics or machine learning in computer science that uh, that operates as, as follows. Imagine that you believe that the internet is indeed has this latent geometry, and if it has this latent geometry, then there is a certain probability that this particular network, which is the internet, can be generated by our model. This probability then depends on the coordinates of each node in the latent space. So what we can use is the, for example, the method which is called uh, Markov chain Monte Carlo, 
that is trying to find the coordinates of each node in this latent space such that the probability of this particular network, the internet, is maximized if the coordinate of each node is this. So essentially we are trying to find the coordinates of each node in the latent space, maximizing the probability that this particular network is being generated by our model. So this task is called the statistical inference task. It's well defined uh, both in machine learning and in statistical mechanics. Unfortunately, of course, to execute this algorithm is a very challenging task. But we managed to succeed and to find the coordinates of each node in the internet. Uh, and we showed that indeed the congruency between the model and the inferred coordinates are very good. There, the internet does have a shape and they found it. Well, they created a very accurate model of it at least. This is cool, but seems to be very much art for art's sake. While there's nothing wrong with doing art or math for its own sake, that just doesn't happen to be the case here. The researchers had a motivation, but in order to understand what it was, we need to better understand how the internet is actually structured. Many people know that the internet is a set of wires connecting routers. That's roughly true, and indeed, uh, at uh, a certain level of abstraction, the internet can be considered as uh, a collection of routers and, and wires that connect these routers. That's not what we are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so what we are talking about here is a different level of abstraction, uh, which is called the structure of the internet at the autonomous systems level. What is autonomous system? Autonomous system is roughly an organization, a company, or maybe even individual, uh, that owns a set of routers, a set of what we called uh, a portion of the internet infrastructure. Now, what are the connections between these autonomous systems and we can represent, of course, the autonomous system now as a node at this much higher level of abstraction. The connections between autonomous systems are essentially business uh, relationships, economic relationships between these organizations. So what we are talking about here, that we are considering the large-scale structure of the Internet because it abstracts a lot of low-level details that we actually cannot measure at the router level. So that's the structure of the internet that we are talking about here. This is about as basic of an explanation as is possible of the structure of the internet. But no matter how simple one gets, there's always going to be one truism about the internet. Data has to move. The rules that govern how this data moves currently are called the Border Gateway Protocol, or BGP. To understand how BGP works, imagine a road atlas, but with all the geography subtracted. Essentially, we're talking about an atlas without maps. Instead, this atlas is just going to be a list of cities and all the roads that connect them. It's still a very good atlas, though, because if you give it the name of any two cities, it's going to tell you the shortest path that you can take between them. At a very rough level, BGP functions like this atlas, only for connections between the autonomous systems that comprise the internet. And as long as nothing changes, it is very effective. The problem is, of course, that the internet changes all the time. We could be talking about new connections being forged or a new autonomous system joining the internet. But from time to time, these changes are much more catastrophic, such as the severing of a submarine cable. An event like that could easily cause a disruption to a connection that BGP is using to move data. And well... Uh, is it a problem? Yes, it is. Because if the graph changes, 
then not only the path between these two individual autonomous systems between which the connection has been lost is affected. But also, since this link was used for many other paths between autonomous systems that may be far away from, the, from, a, from this cut link, then not only those paths that are local to this lost link must be recomputed, but also all other paths that were using this link. So again, very roughly speaking, what's going on? And upon a change of the structure of the network, which is constantly occurring in the internet, due to these lost links, or due to just the growth of the whole internet, many, many paths, global paths in the internet must be recomputed. How? Of course, that's what BGP is responsible for. It needs to rediscover the structure of the new graph and then recompute new shortest paths between each pair of nodes in this graph. And that's what's going on. More importantly, how exactly BGP does rediscover this new graph structure? Of course, the two autonomous systems that are adjacent to, for example, cut link in our example, start sending messages to all their neighbors saying that this link is no longer there. Please update your information. Then their neighbors send information their neighbors, and so on and so forth. And therefore, in the worst case, there is this exponential growth of the number of messages that go all over the network, all over the global internet, in order for this algorithm, for the BGP, to reconverge upon this topological change in the network. And this exponential growth of the number of messages in the network has been considered as one of the most serious limitation in scalability of uh, today's routing protocol. And that, that is the motivation. While BGP is very good at routing information as long as the network is mostly static, it does start to have problems as the internet morphs and evolves. Dr. Krukoff and his colleagues thought that maybe this was the case because the atlas did not contain any geography. There was no map of the internet. And perhaps their work in hyperbolic cartography might just hold the answer to this problem. So what we essentially say is that there is this picture. In road atlas, it's just a geography. But in the internet case, it's this hyperbolic geometry. And that using this picture, you can route very efficiently. In particular, the routing algorithm essentially becomes that when you arrive in the intersection, when you arrive at a node, and the node now is an autonomous system, then this geometric routing says that at each intersection, please just follow the link uh, to the neighbor, which is closest to the destination in this underlying geometry that we discover. Just go to the next node that's closest to the destination? What, what could be easier than that? It must be noted that in the end, ease and simplicity are not the most important aspects of data routing, though. Path length and success are. So what we found is that in the map constructed for the internet, success ratio is very, very close to 100%. It's not 100%, which is... A small problem, but nevertheless, in the BGP, the success ratio is 100%, but it requires this huge recomputation. In our case, it's 97%, so 3% of source destination pairs still are getting lost. But nevertheless, 97% of source destination pairs do reach each other using this simple algorithm. Well, what's interesting is that the stretch is just virtually one. So if you can go from one node to another for these 97% of node pairs, the paths that this prescription 
produces this greedy route, you know, what we call it, produces is just shortest. A 97% success rate and shortest paths. Not too shabby. In fact, if you modify the algorithm slightly, add just a little bit more complexity, then a 100% successful algorithm is possible. Of course, BGP already has these properties. But let's remember the motivation for creating this map of the internet in the first place. The most important result is that even you start disturb the network, break it down, then both the success ratio and stretch essentially stay stable. For example, uh, the one experiment that we did is that we removed 30% of links and nodes in the network. So essentially a third of the network is gone. So that um, we're talking essentially like massive natural disaster. Right. It's massive natural disaster. It never occurred in the internet yeah. because you removed essentially the third of the internet. Right? It never happened before. Success, success ratio, in this case, the percentage of paths that cannot communicate decreased by less than 10%. For comparison with BGP, there was an accident a long time ago, I think approximately more than 10 years ago now already, yes. Uh, when just one, but big, autonomous systems went down, more than 50% of source destination pairs could not communicate <laughs> in this case. So the success ratio, roughly speaking, dropped by more than 50%. In our case, when we remove not one, but the third of all autonomous systems in the internet, the, the number of pairs that could not communicate decreases by less than 10%. Oh, but of course, this uh, comparison is a little bit stretched because you cannot directly compare. But this just to get uh, some feeling about the rough numbers. Now that is a result. So clearly every single company that creates hardware that happens to route data around the internet is going to adopt this algorithm tomorrow, right? The issue is uh, if it's worth of investment to implement in the internet today this routing solution. So I believe it is so, but this is not our call. Uh, uh, for this algorithm to be implemented, it will require some substantial changes to the existing routing infrastructure. And these changes must be first implemented by vendors, and then, of course, it must be supported by the uh, autonomous system, by the operators that operate the internet infrastructure. So that's the question to them, so if they will be willing to implement it. And the question boils up, boils down to a very simple one. Will they benefit economically in terms of revenue that they generate from this algorithm? Because indeed, scalability and problems associated with it do involve some costs for them. But are these costs high enough to make this change profitable in a coordinated manner? That's, that is the question that we don't know the answer for. Whether or not this routing method ends up being adopted, the technique of taking what is considered shapeless and finding its geometry does seem to have a certain power. I personally am looking forward to seeing what is mapped next. May I suggest my social network? I could use some insights there. One of the Relatively Prime funders, and that's it for Relatively Prime this time. We want to thank the guests, Edmund Harris, who can be found on maxwelldemon.com, Matt Parker, the one and only stand-up maths on Twitter, Marcelo Lorenzi and Mauro Franco-Vigila, Franco-Vigila, Franco-something, and Dmitry Krukov, 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 maybe there's a couple of nineties. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really bad with pronunciations. And musicians, Elbjorn Bjorn, YJC, Ricky Splinter, Redshirt Beats, and DJ Peep. 
without all of whom this would not have been possible. If you want to find out more about the guests or the music, or if you want to discuss the show, please join us over at relprime.com. Oh, while you're on the internet, why not head over to iTunes and leave a review of the show? It really does help other people find the show. If you have any feedback about the show, just email samuel at acnescience.com. That is his personal email address. Relatively Prime is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license, and any remixes are greatly looked forward to. Thank you for listening, and we hope to have you back for the next episode. Thank you for listening, and we hope you come. Uh, thank you for listening, and we hope you come back for the next episode. Hope that works. <laughs>